thought I'd start this afternoon by talking about a piece of the third foundation of mindfulness that I haven't yet spoken about. The third foundation of mindfulness being the mindfulness of mind foundation. And as I mentioned pretty early in the retreat, it's the place where the Buddha talks about basically watching the what's in the um, the field of our minds. So what's the, the filter perhaps on our minds, filter or lack of filter on our minds. And I brought the I brought the book this time. How does one abide contemplating mind as mind? One understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. Likewise, for hatred and delusion, understanding a mind affected by hatred or unaffected by hatred a mind affected by delusion or unaffected by delusion. And that does pretty much cover the range of our experience. And yet he goes on and gives some more refinement after this point. The first refinement he offers is One understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. I let that one go by me for a long time in my practice. In the commentaries it says that the contracted mind is the mind affected by sloth and torpor and the distracted mind is the mind affected by restlessness. And so I kind of just set it aside to that, oh, that's just hindrances or, you know, that's just nothing particularly interesting to pay attention to. And yet in the last, I'd say, less than a year, but more than a few months of my practice, this exploration of contraction and distraction has been a huge part of my own practice. I'm coming to see that contraction and distraction, at least in my experience, so you know, this is not what the the commentaries say, contracted is sloth and torpor, distracted is restlessness. But in my experience, the, the contracted mind and the distracted mind, if the contracted mind is a mind pulled in and the distracted mind is a mind scattered outwardly, not, uh, not really landing on anything or uh, not stable anywhere. That these movements of mind, the contracted mind and the distracted mind, seem in my own experience to basically underlie all of the defilements. Most, I'll say most, I'll say most. I don't know about all the delusive states, but the, the, the movement of pulling in has appeared in my experience around, um, I made a few notes about my experience this morning. Trying to track experience wanting to remember experience, wanting to observe experience, also I I see that, so those are, those are um, all forms of a subtle form of greed, those three. The mind also contracts around aversion, 
um, kind of like a no kind of feeling and just kind of pushing an inner an inner kind of stop no that that can be kind of contracted or or a sense of that uh you know removing oneself by secluding pulling in and that experience the experience of contraction and the experience of distraction it feels to me like a it's like almost like an early warning it's like a, a core basic phenomenon that happens around the defilements So it's been very interesting to see and to also see how those two are, um, you know, they can actually be interrelated at times. Sometimes I find when the mind gets distracted, the movement is, ooh, let's contract, let's not do that distraction. And so they almost can both come together. Distraction, ooh, contraction. Or I saw this morning, I was watching this, contracted mind and um, I'm trying to decide which of two ways to go in this moment. (laughs) Um, I was watching the contracted mind and just watching it, just watching it unfold just knowing, oh, this is, this is the contraction, this is a contracted experience. And as I was watching that, there was a, a releasing of that contracted energy and the uh, following with what came next was the experience of the mind being very chaotic. That was uncomfortable. And so that was a, a kind of a sense that the contraction was a kind of a, a seclusion or a protection from a chaotic state of mind. I hadn't noticed any chaotic state of mind, but when it, as, the, as the contraction was releasing, the mind started just kind of, it's like, wow, that's an uncomfortable experience. And so that's noticing the distracted side. And so I've seen this kind of, movement between these two as the contraction releases sometimes distraction is what's present and as as um, we know the distraction sometimes the mind contracts because it's uncomfortable to be distracted I love this section of the sutta, the third foundation of mindfulness, because I feel like it's a call to simplifying our uh, exploration of the mind. There are other places where the Buddha gives long lists of the different kind of defilements. This is a defilement, and this is a defilement, and this is a defilement. In this sutta, the Buddha points to Greed, aversion, delusion, contraction, and distraction. And I found more as the, as the habitual kinds of reactivities fall away, you know, the, the angers and the frustrations and, and the, oh, the, the various kinds of wantings and pride and all kinds of, you know, kind of the, the, the grosser levels of, of uh, our reactivity and our selfing. There's this, uh, this more subtle or more simple perspective on experience. It's really helpful. And so, uh, you know, early in practice, really clearly recognizing the distinction between irritation and frustration and annoyance and uh, anger and aversion and you know, just the, all the different flavors of reactive mind can be really helpful because we see different conditions, different subtleties of way they impact us. And yet at some point, 
the Buddha points out, it's really most helpful to just recognize those are all flavors of aversion. And Sayadaw points out, okay, so aversion, what's the job description of aversion? Get to know that. And so the simplifying of our exploration to these five things, well, five plus presence, then absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. So eight things. The exploration around contraction and distraction in my own experience. It feels to me at this point like all of the other defilements I'm experiencing through that lens. It's like, okay, the, you know, it's, it's, it's either squeezing or it's scattered. Squeezing or it's scattered. And I have found too that this contraction and distraction piece, at least in my own practice, um, it seems to be that the pattern of contraction or distraction unfolds in particular around our way of practicing, our way of meditating. We may get contracted around focusing on a primary object We may get distracted as we use open awareness. This is is the place that it's unfolding a lot in my practice at this point. As I mentioned, you know, seeing in that contraction, it's like, oh, something's happening, and the mind kind of squeezes down. It's like, what's that? Let me look at it. And it's you know, that let me look at it is not inherently a defilement, but the squeezing feeling is a clue that that uh, desire to look at has defilement in it. Now, in, uh, in watching that, and this is, this is kind of the edge of my practice at this point, you know, in watching that, I originally, I noticed the squeezing, and oh, I want to look at that. And then there was this movement to say, oh, oh, I don't have to look at anything in particular, so let me open up the awareness, kind of consciously broadening the attention. And, and that provides some, you know, release from the contraction. And yet I would find very shortly, it was contracted again. And so I began to get the understanding that what was being asked, as always, over and over again, we say, I say this over and over again, this is what's arising, this is what is asking to be known and understood. And so exploring, okay, well the mind is contracted, what's that? What's happening there? What's going on? Just what's the feeling of that? What's the feeling of contracted mind? This pressure, this squeezing. Sometimes it feels like it's a squeezing in this part of my head. Sometimes it feels like it's a squeezing in my heart. Sometimes it's a whole body kind of feeling of squeezing. It's like, okay, this is interesting. This is what the experience is. And I began to see that the willingness to watch it like that (laughs) <laughs> this morning, actually, I noticed there was a there was a little bit of um, hang on, I wrote this down too. Oh, observing it because there was some little kind of belief in my mind is oh, I'm observing this because it's a defilement inherently in that I'm observing it because it's a problem, and uh, that actually contributes to the squeezing a little bit. That the, the, uh, the sense that it's a problem 
is already has a has a, a little bit of a a defilement in it too. And so when I noticed that observing it w- because it's a problem, that let go. And then I was just observing the contraction because it was arising and offering itself to be known. And that uh, experience was simply, um, and this is what I've been watching for these months, is like as I observe the contraction without a bias or a filter in the mind, the, the, the contraction releases on its own. And often there's a deep feeling of letting go, a release, a heart release as the contraction releases. Around distraction, there's also a lot of interesting experience to explore. I may save that for another time though. I think I will save that for another time. So I wanted to bring that in because it's um, it's in the Satipatthana Sutta and <laughs> it's uh, an area of exploration that I've been finding extremely fruitful in my own practice. The other piece I wanted to follow through on from earlier this week was uh, an elaboration perhaps or an encouragement around the possibility that we can recognize when mindfulness arises. I was talking about this earlier in the in the retreat in terms of recognizing the moment mindfulness returns after we've been lost in thought. It's an opportunity to get familiar with the experience of awareness itself because there's a kind of a contrast between being lost and being aware again. And just a, a kind of a a pointer to that exploration. Watching the re-arising of awareness, we will recognize that awareness has returned at some point. You know, we're lost in thought and at some point we notice we're back. But often there is something of a a delay perhaps or a, a, a it's kind of like mindfulness is coming out so slowly that it started to come out but we haven't noticed it starting to appear and then it's like a certain level of mindfulness needs to be reached before our mind mind becomes aware that we're mindful and so it's it's often not that we recognize the moment after you know b- the moment between not present and mindfulness arising we we that that's a that's a pretty uh the mindful mind needs to be pretty present to recognize mindfulness arising out of non-mindfulness. And yet it's an interesting exploration. And so that's the piece I want to point to or encourage or or uh you know suggest is 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 something that might be of interest and again interest and curiosity are the operative terms here because noticing mindfulness arising is not something you can do 
almost by definition, you know, it's like mindfulness has been lost. The doing of any uh, practice requires that mindfulness already be present (laughs) in order to do it. And yet there can be enough momentum of mindfulness that that moment when mindfulness returns can be, it's like we can be there for that moment. And so I talked about this with somebody today and I suggested that you could pick a sitting perhaps or, you know, if you're I- in particular if you found there's a p- period of time where there's a lot of wandering thought, uh, pick a sitting where you just, you know, let the mind wander. And at the beginning of that sitting, you set the intention or or say to yourself, okay, this is the period, this is the practice, this this period is to see if I can notice when mindfulness re-arises. I did this for a while in one long retreat. I picked a period where that was what I did. And, you know, it was great because it really cut into the judgment about the, the, the mind wandering because the whole practice was to notice when the mindfulness re-arose. It didn't matter how many times the mind wandered. Each time it wandered, there was the opportunity to see see the way I was exploring is how how soon can I notice that mindfulness has come back? And that was what I framed to myself. It's again, it's not something we can do. It's not something I can say I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. But by setting that intention it may create the conditions for that interest to be there. And just see what you notice in that time. Without the judgment laid on top of the wandering mind, there's a lot more capacity for awareness to notice itself as it comes back. As we begin to really familiar with that re-arising of awareness, of mindfulness. And I'll just give you a little forward hint on this, a forward a pointer on this. This practice of watching the mindfulness re-arise is my main daily life practice. Because it is effortless, it does not take any work to uh, have mindfulness re-arise. And the noticing of mindfulness re-arising, basically what you're doing there is kind of like, oh yeah, that's what it's like to be mindful. This is what it feels like for mindfulness to come back. And so the, uh, the conditions are supported to notice those moments of mindfulness coming back more frequently and more quickly. So you can uh, practice that here by seeing, exploring that possibility of watching mindfulness re-arise. And I'll talk more. Somebody left a question about this practice in a larger context. And I thought I would save that question to the end of the retreat. This practice in a larger context, this practice going home, and this practice in combination with other practices. So I think that question was left several days ago. And whoever left it, I'll talk about that in the last days of the retreat. But this practice of recognizing the re-arising of mindfulness, if you can get familiar with that here, it will really support you in your daily lives. The first question, it was left late, but it's a perfect follow-on from this. Where is all of this meditation, awareness, and mindfulness taking me? What is the best I can hope for? Moments of awareness. So the um, 
the moments of awareness that we're cultivating. And we are cultivating them in a particular way here. I talked about this in the first day of the retreat, that we are cultivating awareness, we're cultivating mindfulness from a perspective of wisdom. And the simplest articulation, one of the a simple articulation of that wisdom is something along the lines of we recognize experience in the present moment as an experience happening in the present moment. As the Satipatthana Sutta pointed to, one knows the mind affected by greed as the mind affected by greed. That perspective is a radical shift of perspective from how we usually pay attention. Usually when uh, we recognize greed, or actually we don't often even recognize greed, we're already acting on greed. And if we recognize greed, we're thinking about um, a habitual way before we understand this shift of perspective, a habitual way is to, to recognize, oh, that's something I want. How can I get it? How can, you know, so we're oriented around the thing rather than recognizing, oh, this is what it feels like. I have a mind affected by greed. So that simple shift of perspective, I feel kind of articulates, if we just use that as the only wisdom that we explore, and let go of all of the teachings about the five aggregates and the eightfold path and the uh, 12 factors of dependent origination and the, well, the seven this is and the three that's. If we just used that perspective for how we cultivated awareness, wisdom would unfold. The rest of the Dharma would open for us. And so we are cultivating awareness from this, from a particular perspective. It's not just awareness to be aware. It's awareness in the service of freedom. It's awareness in the service of understanding. And so the purpose of this practice, where it's leading us, is towards understanding that frees the mind. We explore that perspective of seeing the mind affected by greed as the mind affected by greed. And our system begins to understand a mind affected by greed is not well-being. I talked about this the other night with respect to trust. We see the mind affected by greed as dukkha. Our organism wants to move towards well-being and it, when it gets the information that a mind affected by greed is not well-being, the organism actually kind of knows how to move in the direction of freedom to, to release that clinging, that constriction. I've seen this over and over again in my practice sitting in the hall at the three-month course and feeling such a searing pain from squeezing and contracting and just wanting things to be other than they are. And recognizing that, knowing, yeah, this is, this is greed, this is, this is craving. And some part of my mind uh, kind of wailed <laughs> I'd let go of this if I knew how. Our conscious minds often do not know how to let go of the way that we crave and cling and constrict. But as our 
as we turn and attend to the suffering that's there, our, our organism figures it out. And I've seen this over and over again, sitting and watching, just being with a craving. And then it releases. And I have no idea how the system knew to do that. That's wisdom arising. Wisdom is what releases the craving. And yet, there are all of these practices and tools that are pointed to that can help us along the way to see this may be a kind of direction that releasing would happen with. Practicing metta when there's aversion, for instance. Or setting aside a uh, difficult state of mind and doing that useless gazing practice I talked about. There are times when there are actions that we know how to take that help to help the mind to release. And so we do those. We can take those actions. And yet at some point, there will be some kind of suffering, some kind of craving in your practice where no thing that you can think about or practices that you've learned or anything that you can do will have any traction on it at all. And all that you can do is open to the suffering of that and trust that the learning is happening. We, we, we may not even be able to articulate the learning. It's happening at a, at a subconscious level, at, a, at, a, at the level of, of wisdom, often not at our, you know, sometimes wisdom doesn't speak in words. It doesn't tell us what it knows. It just functions. And yet sometimes Wisdom does speak and tell us. This is just a thought, the arising of self-hatred, the, the thought of this, the mind recognizes, this is just a thought. So sometimes our wisdom is expressed in words, but not always. And so this practice can take us to freedom. And along the way, it will, it will offer us a lot of a lot more ease, ease and peace and Uh, well-being in our lives. Even just the shift that happens when we uh, see a um, the mind affected by aversion as the mind affected by aversion. Many of you have described this in the meetings. When I see it, it's just the mind affected by aversion. It's it's got a completely different feeling to it. There's not a problem and there's more of a sense of, wow, that's what the mind is doing. Wow, so much suffering has happened from that. So even in just the simple recognition, we feel a, a kind of a joy We can feel a kind of a joy or a delight just in the recognition. Oh, this is the mind affected by aversion. A 
And so sometimes there's this saying, the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. There are ways that all through our practice, we can get little tastes of the wisdom and the insights, the understandings, little tastes of that possibility of freedom. These can inspire us to keep going, inspire us to see the possibility of so much more ease in our lives. When you said that the Buddha taught that all experience is mind-generated, I can see this as obvious in some experiences, and especially when there's clinging. But, for example, how is actual childbirth an experience that's created by the mind? I think this points to, uh, uh, the question points to a, uh, a, I don't know what the right word is, a perspective or a view around what it means for experience to be generated by the mind. I think it, it may have um, kind of the, the view or the perspective that it means that nothing is real. Sometimes there's the statement, it's all illusion. I don't, I don't, I don't um, like to speak of it that way so much because to me it's not so much illusion it's more that what we experience, what is experienced, the only way we experience is through our minds. And so there's the experience of childbirth. There's the experience of um, being a... Uh, a uh, a victim of injustice. That is, it's not made up. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not that when, when I say that all experiences, or when the Buddha, the first vo- verse of the Dhammapada, all experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. It doesn't mean that there's nothing out there at least in my, my view, it doesn't mean that there's not uh, a reality out there and an impingement and, a, and an interaction in relationship with other beings and real uh, pain and suffering, physical pain. We cut ourselves with a knife. The body is designed to produce unpleasant experience. That's not going to go away with the mind letting go of craving. It's a good thing because that process of the body is something that keeps us going, that pleasant, unpleasant sense experience on the body something that keeps us going. I understand actually the the disease called Hansen's disease, used to be called leprosy, is um, you know, y- people have their their bodies kind of begin to wear away, like it just, be, they begin to kind of, it's like their, their bones and their hands and their, their extremities begin to wear away. And part of that is because they lose their pain sense. 
that touch pain sense receptors. So the function of unpleasant and pleasant sensation in our body serves a, a purpose. And so we experience unpleasant physical sensation. It's it's but when I spoke the other day of the all experience being whatever we experience is created by our minds. I mean that more as a reflection of what's happening. We are experiencing when I look out here and see the room and the people in the room. What's hitting the eye, what's contacting the eye is little dots of color, light. The mind creates patterns out of that. The mind creates the image. The mind puts it together. And so there's, there's no way for us to know what's actually out there in a way. And even, you know, even our, you know, our bodily sensations, we're experiencing physical pain. That physical pain is a mental creation. The Buddha said it was a mental creation. He put feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, as a mental formation, a mental aggregate. And this book that I talked about the other day, The Self Comes to Mind, I was interested to read that uh, modern day neuroscience also understands that feeling pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is created by, there's a place in the brain where it's created. Very low level place in the brain. I think it's in the brain stem. So even the experience of pleasant or unpleasant is a mental creation. I'll talk more about that tomorrow. I thought I'd talk about the feeling tone of experience. So we'll spend some time on that tomorrow. So I'll go into that a little more. And so, you know, the the teaching around all experience being created by mind is not to somehow uh, just kind of say, oh, well, everything's created by mind, therefore I'm off the hook for anything. You know, it's like, I can do anything. It doesn't matter because it's all mind-generated anyway and everybody else is mind-generated, so it's just mind stuff and it's like, what's the difference? It's like, it's all the difference. We are beings that experience suffering and the practice here, you know, the whole, in some ways, the whole ethical direction of the Buddhist practice is around alleviating suffering. Not only in our own hearts, but in the world. The whole of the practice from the precepts and the ethical exploration is around non-harming. So the Buddha acknowledges in his, you know, in his teachings, in his teaching, his first teaching to his son when his son was seven years old, see how your actions impact the world before you act. Think about, is it gonna create suffering? For yourself or for others, both. Is it gonna is it gonna create suffering? If if so, don't do it. While you're acting, check this out. After you've acted, check it out. Did it cause suffering? 
the whole perspective of the Buddha is is relational. Not only our own relationship to ourselves, but our relationships to our fellow human beings. And so, yes, what we expe- all that we can experience is generated in our minds. And yet, that doesn't give us a pass on how we are with each other. Because what we experience as reflected in our minds gives us information about what's happening, both inside and outside. And yet what we have to be clear about, what we have to know, and why I think it's so important to recognize that experience is generated by mind, is that because all that we can experience is mediated through the mind, we've seen how much our views and beliefs and opinions and filters impact how we receive information, impact how we relate to the world. And so the the teaching or the understanding of all experiences generated by mind, made by mind, led by mind, continuation of that, those poems says, all experiences led by mind, preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with an, a pure mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So that expression of all experience being made by mind comes with this recognition that it's the well, the purification or the uh, recognition of those filters that obscure and cloud our ability to meet the world in a skillful way. That we have to recognize that that creates suffering both for ourselves and others. The teaching is not all experiences created by mind, led by mind, made by mind, therefore ethics makes no difference. That's not what the Buddha taught. Oh, it's all, it's all mind generated, so just know that and that's all you need to do. It does tend to help us to recognize experience as created by mind, both because we see that um, a filter of delusion impacts how we take in experience and that we're not just taking in what's happening out there and nor are others <laughs> just taking in what's happening out there. You know, we're not alone in our delusion. And we experience sometimes the impact of others' delusions. We experience the suffering that comes from being othered. We experience our own suffering around selfing. The flip side of selfing, and we can begin to look at this too. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of dynamic is to watch othering happen. Sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a sense of me, but boy, there's a sense of somebody else. 
So that's the feeling of othering. When there's an othering happening, there is a sense of self happening. And when we are othered, when we are put into categories and boxes and uh, people view us through an other lens, we, we can suffer from that, not simply because it's an idea. <laughs> it's, it, it, I mean, we do suffer from that sometimes when we kind of bristle at somebody saying, oh, you're just like that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not just like that, you know, and we try to convince the other person that they're wrong or, you know, there's some of that that goes on that, you know, that, that kind of bristling around othering is, is more our own work to, to recognize, well, we're not going to be able to control what other people think of us. But there are some kinds of othering out there that, uh, the othering of race, creates a perspective that creates real harm in the world, real suffering. Not just an idea, not just, oh, this is suffering created by the mind, but but death. And so the, the teaching around all experiences created by mind helps us to see that what we believe about ourselves is generated, what we believe about others is generated, that there's delusion that can creep in there that when we cling to something, what we are actually clinging to is a creation of our mind. When we cling to wanting something or check it out for yourself. You know, it's a, come back to a kind of more mundane example. This one just popped into my mind. Um, Kind of the recognition of the wanting. I thought at one point on a retreat, I was um, noticing that I really wanted to have the experience of rapid uh, impermanence. The teachers had talked about it in the meditation hall, and it's like, I want that. I wanted, you know, I wanted, I wanted, uh, sounded like it was supposed to be a good thing. And boy, there's a lot of suffering around that wanting. And at some point I was doing some walking meditation and feeling the wanting of that. But what I noticed was I kept replaying in my mind a scene, an image, uh, a movie, that I was sitting in the interview room with my teacher and reporting to my teacher that I had had that experience. Yes, this is what it was. It was great. And we're having this celebration together in the interview room, all in my mind. It's like, and I realized I had no idea what arising and passing was or what that experience of impermanence was. I wanted to tell somebody that I'd had that experience. I wanted an idea And that's the way our our wanting works, actually, when we really look at it. We think we want that muffin. But what we really want is the idea that it will be pleasant. It's not even the actual pleasant we want in that moment of wanting. We, we, We project into the future and think, oh, it will be pleasant if I have that. That's all the mind creating the idea of some future moment of pleasant that it will get when it gets what it wants. A 
And so as we start to recognize experiences generated by mind, there's many understandings that happen through that recognition. One, just how powerful delusion is in terms of carrying agendas and views into our relationships. Another is how uh, how our craving, our clinging is based on a thought, an idea. And so as we start to recognize that our experience is generated by mind, it begins to weaken the power that craving and delusion have in the mind. The practice isn't to stop that generation of mind-made experience because we can't. That's all that we have. But the encouragement is recognize that what we are experiencing is created by mind. Respect and have a sense of humility that this mind may put it together in a certain way. And there may be delusion, confusion in the mix. But the recognition that, oh, experience, this is the, this is created, this is a a mental fabrication. This is another practice I've been exploring recently, is just reminding myself, it's a fabrication. This experience is fabricated by the mind. As we, and particularly if there's any kind of suffering, just reminding myself, all right, this is fabricated by the mind. Now, again, you know, remembering this is, this, uh, this is a place where uh, it gets tricky because what I'm experiencing is fabricated by the mind but it is a reflection of what is happening. And so, yes, there is injustice in the world. And some of it may be directed towards us and some of it we may see directed towards others. And have relationships to that. As the heart stops having constriction around seeing that injustice, it's not that we sit there and go, Oh, injustice, that's the way it is. It would be like like um, you're watching a child and you see the child run into the street in front of a moving car and it's not like you go, oh, things as they are. You act. When the heart is not constricted, you act to alleviate that possible suffering. May, it may even sound like a version. It's like, stop! Don't go there! And so, the, uh, you know, when we see injustice in the world, and this is um, pointing indirectly to the next question I was going to speak to, but don't have time. But when we see injustice in the world, the constriction of aversion actually blocks our capacity to respond from wisdom and kindness and compassion. 
we think that aversion is the way that we would act. You know, if I didn't have aversion, why would I, why would I respond? If I didn't have aversion to this injustice, why would I, why would I do anything about it? The heart that is unconstricted feels the pain of others suffering in a very profound way. And it hurts. That's not aversion. That's the empathetic response of the heart that meets suffering. And that heart wants to act out of compassion. And until, <laughs> until we're uh, you know, fully free from greed, aversion, and delusion, we're going to be angry. Okay, we'll be angry. Honor that too. We can honor that experience of anger and recognize that it's also tied up with that wish for suffering not to be there. And maybe recognize the, the threats of compassion that are there too. Landing maybe to act from the compassion and recognize oh, it just feels wrong that that's happening. So we need to stop. Thank you for your questions and your attention.